we're really not that different from our ancestors. Go back a few generations, say three billion years, give or take, and you'll come across single-cell organisms that look a lot more like today's bacteria than like you. Still, when you look at their behaviors, it's fairly obvious this is family. These microorganisms would float around kind of aimlessly until their sensors would detect some delicious chemical nearby. This would send a signal that would flip a switch, making these little protrusions called flagella rotate, propelling them towards their food. Now, fast forward a few years, all the way down to you, stumbling out of a bar at 3 a.m. blind drunk. You're bumping into people, bumping into walls, when suddenly you catch the scent of a nearby pizza joint. You barely even know where you are or who you are, but your legs start to move of their own accord, carrying you towards your greasy late-night snack. Like I said, not that different. The thing we all share with our microbial ancestors is an ability to react to our environment. For billions of years, we've been collecting information about our surroundings and basing our actions on that information. Back then, our senses were primitive, of course, but with time we developed better ones. Eyes, ears, noses, and all so that we could know what was out there. Ever since we were just microbes, we have always had a vested interest in what is around us. This interest has mainly been focused on practical concerns, food, danger, sex. But at some point, some other curiosity must have taken hold. As we emerged from our caves, looked up to the night sky and wondered what those little faraway lights could be. The question, what is, began to assume a grander significance. And today we're still looking out to the stars and inward into the smallest constituents of things, into the nature of reality itself all in an effort to understand what is real about the world. Hello human, welcome to Wise Hypocrite's Guide to Everything, a podcast about the 10 questions of human existence. I'm Patrick Daniel, a banking lawyer who quit his career to study philosophy and, as a result, unwisely believes himself wise. Spoiler. By the end of this episode, I'll be telling you that it is extremely likely that nothing you see around you right now is real. Not the device you're listening to this on, not the hand you're holding it in, or hands. You could be holding it in two hands. None of them real. In fact, not a single object you can think of, and not even the concepts of time and space, are in fact real. But let's take it slow. This is the second of 10 episodes introducing the 10 questions of human existence. For those of you who are new, these are the universal questions that have defined humanity for thousands and thousands of years and have shaped the lives of every single human being that has ever lived and that will ever live. Every one of our actions, our thoughts, our beliefs, our ideas, our concepts, our trousers, our books, our tissues, our donuts, everything you can think of is an answer to, or at least an exploration of, one or more of these 10 questions. Guaranteed. To get a sense of why this is, do go and check out episode zero, which also sets out how serious engagement with these 10 questions can change your life for the better. Also guaranteed. You know, this is no miracle cure. There's no grandma's secret recipe going on here. It's just what it means to live an examined life. 
One last point to make uh, before we get into the thrust of it, just to say that if you haven't done it already, do go and check out episode one before you embark on this one. It's not like you absolutely have to, but you're just going to get so much more out of this one if you do. So it's up to you. Anyway, let's uh, head on to today's question. What is real? Or more simply, what is? This is a question about facts, about what is the case in a given situation, what kind of situations, every situation, all of them, all of the situations. This is the question we're asking whenever we're trying to figure out what's going on. From, I wonder how many atoms there are in the sun, to, hey, what did I just step in? It's huge. Because we're constantly trying to figure out what's going on in real time. Anytime we want to get a sense of our surroundings, anytime we look in a bush for tigers or scan a room to see who came to our party, anytime we read the news or a menu or check our inbox or turn around to see what that sudden sound was, we are asking, what is? Anytime we have to decide how to act in a given circumstance, whether it's checking the weather to decide what to wear or sniffing the milk to see if it's okay to drink it, we are asking, what is? The question is at the foundation of all scientific inquiry. It's what our physicists, our biologists, our climate scientists, our doctors are tirelessly trying to figure out. Theories about dark matter and black holes and dinosaurs and coronaviruses are all trying to determine what is. And it lies at the heart of any metaphysical, religious or spiritual project. Anything from the myth of Genesis to the notion of karma to the statement there is no God is someone's answer to the question what is. And yes, the same goes for conspiracy theories. Anytime some nutter tells you that the world is governed by secret lizard people who run pedophile rings out of pizza joints, you're hearing some bullshit answer to what is. In short, anytime we are trying to establish a fact, the question we are asking is what is. So that's a big question. And here's how we're going to approach it. First, we're going to start with the personal level, you know, how this question applies to each of us in our day-to-day -day lives and how it's constantly there in the background to everything we do, even without our noticing it. Next, we're going to take it to the social level, specifically to how all of our different answers to what is are making it harder for us to put our heads together and find common solutions to big problems. And finally, we're going to go to the metaphysical level and take a look at how our relationship to reality is probably totally different from what we assume. And also, you probably have no hands. Good? Awesome. Okay, right. So let's take it all the way back to the beginning. A concept I'd like you to keep in mind for the rest of this episode is building a picture of reality to react to. I'm just going to repeat that because I really want it to stay there fixed. Building a picture of reality to react to. Remember that microbe from the intro? As the physicist Max Tegmark tells us, many bacteria have a sensor that measures the concentration of sugar in the liquid surrounding them. Sugar is food, right? Now, what happens next is a little like that game we used to play as children, hot or cold. Remember that one? No, someone would hide an object and you'd have to find it. And when you got closer to the object, the person would say warm, hot, getting hotter, boiling hot or something like that if you were really close. And of course, if you move further away from the object, they'd say cooler, cold, freezing cold, stuff like that. So that would act as a kind of barometer for you to tell how close you were to the object, how far, or whether you were on the right track. 
And how a bacterium finds its energy source, sugar, is a little like that. So if its sensor detects a lower sugar concentration than a moment ago, like that kid saying, getting colder, this automatically reverses the rotation of the bacterium's propellers so that it changes direction. Less sugar, change course. More sugar, keep going. What is out there in the bacterium's surroundings determines its actions. If the bacterium sensors weren't any good at measuring sugar, or if its actions disregarded the sensors reporting, then that bacterium would die. The point I'm getting at here is that every action takes place in a context. And that context is made of facts, like sugar concentration in the liquid. That's a fact. If we want our actions to be properly tailored to our context, in a word, effective, First, we need to gather and process information about those facts. So, say you reach an intersection. What's the first thing you do? You look around. Why? Well, because there's something you want to do, see? You want to cross the road. And to know if you can do that safely, first you need to check what's going on. Are there cars approaching? Is the road covered in snakes? Is someone you owe money to on the other side? Whatever you're up to, you can't really know what to do until you know more about the way things actually are. And... This act of collecting data about the external world and then processing it and interpreting it, etc., is what we've always been doing since millions of years ago, back when we used to scour the forest to detect unusual sights or sounds that might alert us to the presence of a bear or a delicious strawberry or a sexy monkey to have sexy monkey babies with. And billions of years before that, when we were just prokaryotes, like the one in the intro, just automatically detecting chemicals in our environment, ever since the beginnings of life itself, we are always building a picture of the world to react to. And if you think about it, everything we do is in response to that picture. So, if we want to get our actions right, we need to get the picture right. Because getting the picture of the intersection wrong is the difference between you crossing the road safely and you ending up in the hospital, right? And that's just when it comes to our immediate surroundings. But consider the broader context too, the whole world, the news. Whether our picture of reality involves a global pandemic or a giant hoax about a global pandemic tells us everything we need to know about whether we should be wearing a mask in public or not. What's out there is the most necessary data we need to know what to do. And we can take it even wider than that, to reality itself as a whole. Would you still feel the same way about that approaching car at the intersection if your picture of reality was telling you that this is all a simulation, like the Matrix? Or if your picture of reality involved an afterlife that is better or more real than this one? Of course not. Any of these things, if true, would have the profoundest impact on your choices. See, even when it comes to theoretical questions about the nature of reality, our attitude towards that car changes based on what is. And that's who we are. Descendants of a long line that goes back all the way to the prokaryote in the intro, of ancestors who are really good at gathering and interpreting information about the external world, and then acting on that information. And if we want to be as successful as they were, we need to get good at building accurate pictures of reality. But there's a snag. There's always a snag with philosophical questions. If anything, it seems that our pictures are getting less accurate. In fact, 
you could say that we are becoming more and more disconnected from reality. We are different from bacteria in one way, and that is that we're much more social than they are. Most of the things we do, we do with other people, and anything social involves coordination. You know, at the far end, you have super tight coordination, like synchronized swimming and team sports and things like that. And on the other end, you have simpler everyday things, like just being part of a society. You know, that involves coordination too, a looser kind of coordination. But at the end of the day, we're still all following common guidelines. So at the very least, that we don't get into each other's way too much. But here's the thing. For any action to be coordinated, our pictures of reality have to align. We need to inhabit a shared reality. Imagine being in traffic, right? And everyone's picture of reality says something different. You know, one guy sees a red light, another one sees a green light, another one thinks he's alone on the road, another one thinks he's gridlocked. That's chaos, you know, that is, that's actually the very definition of insanity. And I think we all agree that we've got far bigger problems to solve than traffic. Around the world today, we are facing some of the biggest challenges we've ever faced in all of our history. Climate change, super pandemics, the threat of nuclear weapons, social media bugging our minds, driving us insane, the rise of authoritarianism. Any solution to these problems involves collective action. And our working together to solve a problem depends on us agreeing on certain things. First of all, that there is a problem. And then what the nature of that problem is. You know, is it a leaky faucet or is it a burst pipe? Is it a school shooting or is it just a hoax? Now, of course, we can have different ideas on how to solve the problem. That's just politics, right? But we have to share some basic assumptions. But what could these assumptions be? What is it that we can all share so that even though we all have our points of view and our different opinions, our pictures of reality can still align on the important issues? And one answer is facts. We have facts. Now, a fact isn't a point of view, right? It's not an opinion. A fact is just something that is true, whether or not we believe it. It just is. We can interpret these facts in different ways. We can have different opinions on what the facts mean, but the facts themselves should be beyond dispute. I can believe 9-11 was a terrorist attack. You can believe it was an inside job, and someone else can believe it was the Mexicans or whoever. But at least we can all agree that on September 11th, 2001, the Twin Towers did in fact collapse. As long as our individual stories, our pictures about the world, remain anchored to reality by facts, those different pictures can converge at those key points. So then we can talk about it, we can bring our evidence, we can discuss it, we can enter into a constructive dialogue to figure things out together. Facts don't just anchor us to reality, but to each other. And now I'm sure you can see where this is going. Because one of the most shocking developments of our time is that we can no longer agree on facts. And you don't even agree about what counts as a fact. You know, facts we don't like aren't even facts anymore. They're alternative facts or fake news. And if we no longer acknowledge the same facts as facts, then they can't act as that external benchmark. They can't be that anchor. 
And without that anchor, we are becoming unanchored from reality. Our constant exposure to millions of different narratives, which are often completely at odds with each other, has a disorienting effect, to the point where it's hard to know what's going on in the world, what's even real. You know, is this problem a real problem, or is it made up? Is it a conspiracy? And whose fault is it? Is it this guy, or is it that guy? Or is it this guy trying to make us believe it was that guy? I mean, what the hell's going on? And so amidst this confusion, we retreat into our own worlds. We become untethered from that external frame of reference, which is facts. And so our pictures of the world no longer overlap at those key points. And we've seen the effects of this. You know, talk to someone who watches a different news channel from you. You might as well be living in different dimensions. Now, it's often said that we live in a post-truth era. But what is reality without truth? In order to reconnect, we need to rebuild that shared picture of reality, starting with agreeing on basic things like what constitutes a fact. And once we do that, we can then disagree all we want on what to do about it, but it's crucial that we at least develop a shared sense of what actually is. Now, a huge part of this, perhaps the biggest part, has to do with the problem of knowledge. But that's a question for the next episode, so we'll leave that there for now. Instead, I want to close this episode by looking into the biggest problem we face in our quest to understand reality. And bear with me, because uh, things are about to get a little bizarre. There's a painting by the Belgian painter René Magritte. You've seen it, it's very, very famous. It's a, a pipe. It's just a pipe. And under the pipe, in French, these words. Ceci n'est pas une pipe. This is not a pipe. What? When asked by an art critic what he meant by this contradiction, Magritte answered, of course it's not a pipe. Try smoking it. Now, what Magritte meant by this is that we shouldn't be fooled. This was not a pipe, but a picture of a pipe. The painting is aptly named La Trahison des Images, The Treachery of Images. Now, we've been talking about building a picture of reality, and here's where we really dig deep into that concept. Because just like that painting isn't a pipe, but a picture, a representation of a pipe, what we observe in reality is not reality itself, but our own internal picture of reality. We assume that our senses are like transparent windows onto reality and that they just passively receive the information that's out there. But that is not the case. Instead, we are constantly processing and interpreting the data from the external world actively. We are literally building our own picture of reality. If Magritte had wanted to be really precise, he would have said, this is not a pipe. It's not even a picture of a pipe. It's your picture of a picture of a pipe. And if our picture of reality is not the same as reality itself, that means there's a gap there between our perception of things, our picture, and the things themselves. Now, this idea is super ancient. You know, for the longest time, our greatest thinkers have been fascinated and frustrated by this mismatch between what our senses tell us about the world and what is actually real. 
You might be familiar with the Hindu and then Buddhist concept of the veil of Maya, the subtle illusion of the world which hides the true, absolute and ultimate reality that lies beyond. Closer to my side of the world, there's Plato's famous myth of the cave, in which he imagines that we are all like uh, prisoners in a cave, and that we've spent our whole lives in this cave, chained up, facing the wall, away from the entrance, right? Outside of the cave, life is going on. People are walking, people are going about their business, you know, they're, they're living their lives. But we can't see them. We can only see their shadows projected on the wall that we're facing. And so, because we've never seen what's outside, we believe the shadows are real. And so we remain ignorant of true reality, of what is actually real. Almost every major tradition has explored this idea of there being a mismatch between the way the world appears to us and the hidden reality just beyond. But if we take this idea seriously, the question what is involves figuring out the relationship between reality and our picture of reality. Is our picture like an accurate, super high-res 4D video of reality? Or is it more like a grainy photo? Or maybe it's like a child's drawing, you know, just kind of sketching out the main features of reality, but without giving much detail. Or it could be like the Matrix, that everything we see is a fabrication, an illusion, and reality beyond is just completely different from what we imagine. What is the relationship between our picture of reality and reality itself? And this is not a question that just crazy philosophers or Hindu mystics are asking. This is something that has been explored and is being explored by quantum physicists and neuroscientists and cognitive psychologists. And their findings can often sound like something straight out of a sci-fi movie. I want to tell you about one of my favorites, the interface theory of perception by a guy called Donald Hoffman. He's a professor of uh, cognitive psychology at um, UC Irvine. And according to his theory, what we see is nothing like reality. In fact, the probability that we experience reality as it actually is, is close to zero. Instead, what we experience and interact with is simply an interface designed to help us navigate problems. Evolutionary problems, specifically. Basically, the interface makes it easier for us to go after things that are good for us, like food and sex, and avoid things that are bad for us, like sharks and fire and Christian rock and so on. The idea is that external reality is so vast and so complex, we simply wouldn't be able to deal with it. I mean, imagine what it would be like to access the whole of reality. Well, you can't imagine it. <laughs> That's the point, I guess. But Imagine instead what it would be like to be able to see every atom, every electron in existence, and to hear every frequency, and to be exposed to all of that information in all of the universe all at once. And then multiply that by an infinity of experiences and ways of experiencing that we can't even imagine. Think about how crazy and unworkable that would be. Most of us get overwhelmed by too much choice at the supermarket. I guess... The creatures best equipped for survival were the ones who didn't get distracted by the sheer infinity of information out there and instead could just focus on no-nonsense stuff, you know, opportunities and threats. And we descended from those creatures. As Steven Pinker says, quote, Our minds evolved by natural selection to solve problems that were life and death matters to our ancestors. 
not to commune with correctness, end quote. In other words, our interface is designed not for accuracy or truth, but for fitness. So, to go back to the metaphor from earlier, our picture isn't like an accurate photograph of reality. And it's not even a child's drawing. Instead, it's more like icons on your computer's desktop. Here's how Donald Hoffman puts it. Quote, Suppose you're writing an email, and the icon for its file is blue, rectangular, and in the center of your desktop. Does this mean that the file itself is blue, rectangular, and in the center of your computer? Of course not. The color of the icon is not the color of the file. Files have no color. The shape and position of the icon are not the true shape and position of the file. In fact, the language of shape and position and color cannot describe computer files. The purpose of a desktop interface is not to show you the truth of the computer, where truth in this metaphor refers to circuits, voltages, and layers of software. Rather, the purpose of an interface is to hide the truth and to show simple graphics that help you perform useful tasks, such as crafting emails and editing photos. If you had to toggle voltages to craft an email, your friends would never hear from you, end quote. Now, ain't that fascinating? I mean, it certainly runs contrary to everything we've ever believed is real. We're all wearing these super immersive virtual reality headsets. And whenever the VR software detects a threat, the simulation shows us something scary, like a speeding car or a tiger in a bush. But the thing is, the tiger isn't real. Tiger is just an icon, a decoded message that is designed to warn us of something more fundamental that is harmful to us. Now, what the thing is that is actually there and that our interface decodes as Tiger is a mystery. That's the billion-dollar question, in fact. What's actually there beyond the icon? What is actual reality actually like? The truth is we don't know. And maybe we can never know. But we can speculate. And according to the interface theory of perception, whatever reality is, objects and space and time aren't a part of it. Yes, you heard that right. Just like the language of shape, position, and color that we use to describe a desktop icon cannot describe the actual files, the language of objects and space-time may be inadequate to describe real reality. Instead, matter and space-time may simply be a part of our interface. And perhaps the world out there is just pure information, without any boundaries, and it's just our mind that collapses reality into neat spatial arrangements and temporal sequences of cause and effect and before and after. So maybe, while we believe that disciplines like physics that study matter and space-time are studying objective reality, instead they're just studying our concepts, our interface of reality. Just the picture of the pipe, but not the pipe itself. I mean, if this doesn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. But, you know, you might say, so what? How does this affect anything? If I'm living in that picture, the picture is all that matters, right? Wrong. I humbly submit that exploring this mystery should be an integral part of how you live your life. No matter how immersive or how useful or pleasant our picture may be, it is not enough to simply accept the illusion at face value. What is true about the world should affect our behavior. 
Imagine we find out that the interface theory of perception is right. If there is no space, concepts like distance and size and shape make no sense. Physical separation between things evaporates. The notion of distinct objects loses meaning. Once we're throwing space and distance and shape and objects into the trash, maybe we're also losing the concept of you and me as separate entities. Let that sink in. Shouldn't this affect how we view one another? The respect and consideration and care that we give to one another? And if there's no time, then past and present and future are meaningless concepts. I mean, how could this not affect our attitude towards death? And you can say the same for any scientific or metaphysical or religious view about reality. If we discover that Thor or Zeus or Yahweh or anyone else is real, or that this is just one amongst infinite realities with all these possibilities playing out, wouldn't this affect the whole picture of the world that we're building in order to react to it? These are real concerns. The fact that they're theoretical concepts doesn't make them less real. But you know what? Even if none of this were strictly speaking practical, so what? You know, so what that our culture tells us that anything that has value has to be practical. It has to be able to be condensed into three quick takeaways. Uh, life hacks. Two longs didn't read. Life isn't just bullet points. There's more to being human than that. You, listening right now, you are a philosopher. This is not some crazy aspiration. This is not a motivational speech. This is who you are. This is your heritage as a human being. There is nothing more human than curiosity, nothing more human than asking questions, than exploration and discovery and wondering about the world. We were made for this. Now, I keep repeating this quote because it's the best quote and because I try as best I can to live my life by it. What Dante writes in the Divine Comedy, that we were not made to live as beasts, but to pursue virtue and knowledge. But he starts that by saying, considerate la vostra semenza, consider your lineage. And what is your lineage? Because sure, it's true that for billions of years, the question what is was merely about practical things, energy sources and threats and things like that. It is true that for the longest time, all we cared about were apples and trees and snakes and bushes and those sexy monkeys. But hundreds of thousands of years ago, we looked up to the stars in wonder, and we asked, what is that? And maybe we couldn't articulate the scale of the question, but that curiosity took hold, and we couldn't shake it. We are still those people. And as we developed languages and cultures, for countless generations, we would gather around fires to listen to old sages tell stories about where the world came from, and what it was made of, and who might have made it. Those were the stories that captured our hearts and our imaginations. That was us. And we are still the people from whom the first philosophers came, with their theories about reality. Some said it all comes from water, and others said it was just air. And then, 2,500 years ago, a man called Demosthenes told us that everything was made out of something called atoms. Millennia of men and women trying to answer this question is what has given us all of the findings of science and philosophy and medicine and technology that make our lives possible. 
this is who we are and this is who we must be. Because if it's true that we are made to pursue virtue and knowledge, what greater knowledge can there possibly be than knowledge about what is? Hey humans, thank you for sticking with me until the end of this episode. I know it must have been tough. Anyway, the gods of the internet have ordained that one must always end these things with a little bit of self-promotion. So, much to my distaste, I'm going to try and do it because, well, you know, you just gotta do what you gotta do. So, here we go. If you like what I'm doing here, you can always help out, and most of the ways you can do that don't involve you sending me wads of cash in an envelope, which of course I'm always grateful to receive. But if you don't want to send me envelopes with or without cash in them, you can really, really help in other ways. The main way is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to your podcast and that allows you to leave podcast reviews. Now, here's the thing. The review doesn't even have to be a good review. There's something about algorithms. I don't know how it works. But the point is, you can actually write, Patrick is an idiot, the podcast is shit, and that still works in my favor. So, well, hey, it's a miracle. Try it. Otherwise, you can share the podcast on your social media. You can talk about it. You can spread the word and help build the community. Because community is a very important thing here. What I need most to help further my project is to hear from you. I want to hear your lived experiences. The whole point is to show how these big questions really matter to our everyday lives, not just if you want to appreciate Shakespeare or the Aeneid or Mozart or some philosopher. What matters most is how you relate to these questions and how they pop up in your lives. So if you have any thoughts and questions about any of this, send me an email at patrick at wisehypocrite.com or you can leave a voicemail on Anchor, anchor.fm slash wisehypocrite. And if you have a question or a voicemail there that I really like, I'm going to stick it in the podcast. Well, hey, you're going to be famous. <laughs> Not really, but still, you know, I will stick it on the podcast, probably. And here's a new thing. Recently, I've been spending a lot of time on Clubhouse. Clubhouse is an amazing app to have live audio conversations with people. And there I have a club called Existential, where I talk about exactly the kinds of questions that we discuss on this podcast. So if you're on Clubhouse, add me at Wise Hypocrite. Or if you're not on Clubhouse and need an invite, reach out to me some way and I will send you one. Otherwise, you can find me on all the social media at Wise Hypocrite. All of it, except for Twitter. I mean, I'm technically on Twitter, but I hate it because it drives people crazy, so I'm never really on it. Finally, last but not least, if you want to help me out in a more material way, which I am immensely grateful for, of course, you know, I do all of this by myself and for free, uh, you can sign up to my Patreon. Wise Hypocrite, of course, and you can get access to all the bonus content, which for now is mainly Clubhouse conversations that I record, my interviews with authors and philosophers and scientists there, but also just extra stuff and previews and promotions, and of course, my undying gratitude. You know, every little helps. As I say, this is completely free. But with a bit of extra income, I'm going to be able to hire a team to help with frequency so I can do more episodes and not be as slow as I am currently. I'm going to be able to get equipment so that the sound gets better. It's just going to be a better product. Eventually, I'm going to get to it out of my own pocket, so don't worry. But of course, if you want to chip in, I would really love it if you did. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening to all of this nonsense, and uh, I will catch you again very soon. Arrivederci. Arrivederci.